I want to ask you to find James chapter 4. I told you last week as we were wrapping up the book of Ruth that we would just kind of bounce around for a, a couple of weeks here. And I would not try to start any new series right now. And uh, I want to have you turn tonight to James chapter 4. And we're going to talk about Deo Valente. Do you know what Deo Valente means? Anybody? Now some of what I'm going to talk about tonight, there will be some, some similarities in tonight's message. And when about three or four years back, we went through the book of James. And so you'll, you should uh, remember a few things that I will mention tonight about this text. Uh, hopefully you took some good notes back then. And may help you with some discussion points tonight. But Deo Valente. Deo Valente. God's will. Very good. Yay. <laughs> so uh, find uh, chapter 4 and verse 13. And tonight I'm reading out of the New American Standard. Uh, James says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow... We will go to such and such city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. I trust everybody in here tonight knows the name Jonathan Edwards. Do you know the name Jonathan Edwards? Yes. Anybody not know the name Jonathan Edwards? Probably the greatest pastor slash theologian that America has ever produced. Also, God used him in a tremendous way uh, in a great awakening here in, in this country. You know, Jonathan Edwards, when he was just a young man, he made five principles to live by, and he did, in fact, live by those faithfully. Number one, he said, resolved to live with all my might while I do live. That's a good principle, isn't it? To live with all my might while I do live. Secondly, never to lose a moment of time, but to improve it in the most profitable way that I can. Thirdly, never to do anything which I should despise or think less of in someone else. Fourth, never to do anything out of revenge. Fifth, never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if this were the very last hour of my life. That's good principles to live by, isn't it? 
Somebody has suggested that life commitments and principles to live by are a lot like babies crying in church. They've got to be carried out to be any good. (laughs) James speaks to us about a matter that ought to be very important to all of us as believers. And that is Deo Valente, the will of God. The will of God. That ought to be in the very forefront of every believer's life. Jesus said we're to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Part of seeking first the kingdom of God is living according to the will of God. And so whatever activity we're engaged in life, whatever decisions we're making as believers... We ought to be seeking the mind and the heart and the will of God. You know, the scriptures give many marks of a true believer. Things like love for God, love for God's people, repentance from sin, devotion to God's glory, prayer, separation from the world, obedience, things that are marks of true believers. Well, this ought to be a mark of a true believer also, that we, we desire to know and to do the will of God. In Psalm 40, verse 8, King David wrote, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. And then Jesus in Mark three thirty-five said, Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother and father. In Matthew 7, 21, Jesus gave the sobering warning. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Not everybody who says they're a Christian is a Christian. Not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, with their lips is saved. But again, one of the marks of a believer, Jesus said, is somebody who does the will of his Father. Peter said in 1 Peter 4, 2, he exhorted Christians to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but rather for the will of God. And then Jesus was the greatest example here in John 4, 34. He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Remember that discussion? The the disciples came back and said, Lord, you need to eat. Have you eaten yet? And he said, "My, my food is to do the will of God. And also Jesus perfectly modeled doing the will of God in the garden of Gethsemane, didn't he? Because right before he was arrested, when he was sweating drops of blood, what was his prayer? Was his prayer, God, get me out of this? No. He said, thy will be done. Deliver me from this if it's your will. Nevertheless, thy will be done. 
We are to live in the Lord's will. We need to allow God to direct our steps. Now, folks, the people that James is writing to are wanting to play God. If we were to look back at verses 11 and 12, they wanted to play God in the lives of other people by judging other people prematurely. In verses 13 to 17, they wanted to play God over their own lives. They're essentially living like practical atheists. You know what a practical atheist is, right? Somebody who says they love God, but then they just don't ever seek Him. They don't ever bring God into their lives. They say they believe in God, but yet you put their life down next to an atheist and there's, there's very little difference. So it's like these folks are living as practical atheists. You know, we've got people who would never deny God with their lips. They may be in church every single Sunday without fail, but by the decisions they make on Monday morning, you would never know anything about their faith. Augustine said, we are to love God and do as we please. Now, he meant that in a good way. Augustine didn't mean that in a bad way. By saying we are to love God and then do as we please, what do you mean by that? If we truly love God with all our minds and hearts and souls, we're going to be able to do what we please because we're only going to want to do the things that are pleasing to God. So again, he meant that in a good way. But you know, we've kind of changed Augustine's love God and do as we please. We've stood that on its head and we say, do as we please and say we love God. Well, again, James is talking to him about Deo Valente. If you're taking notes, write down first of all, we must avoid the sin of presumption. We must avoid the sin of presumption. In verse 13 he says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we'll go to such and such city, spend a year there, and engage in business and make a profit, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. Listen to what Dr. Kent Hughes says about these folks. In his commentary on James, he says, and I quote, His attack is specifically aimed at the materialistic focused Christian merchants in his congregations who arrogantly mapped out their destinations and travels on the basis of profitability with no reference at all to the will of God. It had not been easy for them when they first became Christians. In fact, their Conversions had cost them socially and economically. But in the initial flush of spiritual forgiveness, they had borne the difficulties with grace, for they hung on to Christ with everything they had. But as life settled down, the cares of making a living began to dominate their lives again. They came to assume that profit and God's will were one and the same. Soon they reverted to being self-made, self-assured men 
who, though now Christians, live as if this world is all there is. If they prayed in reference to their lives, it was not to ask God where and what they should do, but to ask His blessing on the plans that they had already made. Hughes goes on to say, they were so much like us. We are such children of our times that we cannot conceive that it would ever be God's will that we not become prosperous. Sadly, we have often advised our children the same way. Son, be sure you get into a profession where you will make a good living so you won't ever have to struggle the way I did. Hugh says, goes on to say, some have even objected to their children going into Christian work or missions because it won't be lucrative enough. Now, as we get into this passage right off, you can, you can hear the disappointment in James' voice, can't you? What's he say? How's he begin? Come now. Come now. It, it's, it's, it'd be like somebody saying today, listen up now. Come on, folks. Let's be real now. That's the type of phrase that he's using. It's an int- attention-getting phrase. It, it's like he's saying, folks, we need to wake up and we need to come to our senses. We need to look in the mirror at what we're doing and we need to change. That's essentially the way his first opening phrase is used. You know, things had really changed for the Jews. Uh, In the Babylonian exile, they had fortunately learned the ways of business. Remember, God had told them when they went into the exile, when they went into captivity, He said, I want you to work for the good of the city and the good of the place you're going to. You're going to be exiles there. You're going to be foreigners. You're going to be under my my hand of discipline. But I want you to work for the good of the land. Because as the land prospers, you'll prosper. And in a foreign land like that, where many of them had come out of farming communities and lifestyles, they got involved in, in the business world there in Babylon. And they became quite good at it. The Jews developed a reputation for for being good in business and knowing how to to make a living at it. And then you come down to Alexander the Great, who, well, well, first of all, let, let me say after the Babylonian exile, remember when the Persians defeated the Babylonians, Cyrus issued the decree so that the Jews could go back home to their land and rebuild the temple and rebuild their city. Only 50,000 of them went back home. Most of them stayed there in what was now Persia. What had been Babylon and now was Persia after Cyrus and the Persian armies defeated the Babylonians. Uh, Why didn't they go back home? 
because they built their businesses. They were making good livings. So they didn't go back home. Then you come down to when Alexander the Great and the Greeks conquered the Persians. And remember what Alexander the Great wanted to do? He wanted to take the world through this process of Hellenization. What's Hellenization? Teaching them Greek. Alexander the Great thought that the ways of the Greeks were superior to everybody else in the world. So he wanted the world to be Greek. So the culture, the language, business and everything. Alexander's goal was to make the world Greek. It's called Hellenization. And travel became much more conducive. A lot more opportunities too at travel. And the Jews got caught up in that. They started becoming more world travelers and going to other lands and starting businesses and so forth. Again, they became quite good at it. It's these type folks that James is writing to. They are professionals. They are merchants. They are business people in his congregation now if you would have asked them do you believe in God they would have said of course we believe in God we're Jews every time we go to the synagogue or we go to the temple we say the Shema Deuteronomy 6 4 hear O Israel the Lord our God The Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and body and soul and strength. And you shall teach these commands to your children. The Shema. Of course, James, we're believers. Of course we believe in God. Why would you even ask us such a thing? You know we believe in God. But notice the problem. They're living their lives as though they're the captain of their own ship. They're planning their lives away without God. So here they are, they're planning their lives away. Not bringing God into the equation apparently. Notice their presumption. They thought they knew when they were going, today or tomorrow. They thought they knew where they were going. We'll go to such and such city. They thought they knew how long they would stay. We're going to stay a year there. They thought they knew exactly what they'd be doing. We're going to buy and sell and trade. And they thought they knew the outcome of it all. We're going to make a lot of money. We're going to make a profit. So again, they had begun to take charge of their lives as though God didn't exist. There's no evidence whatsoever that they sought the will of God or they prayed about their decisions. Uh, Here were men and women who thought that they had the world by the tail. But they didn't realize that instead it was the world that had them. And they're just playing lip service to God. Now, look at their arrogant decision. They, they, they had it all figured out. Again, they, they've mapped out exactly what all's going to take place. 
Now, folks, let me say to you tonight that their sin was not that they were interested in gain. The scripture is not against making an honest profit. Their their sin is not in the fact that they planned. The book of Proverbs encourages believers to plan. To to take the example of the animal world that that uses the good seasons to lay up and store for wintertime. So making money and planning is not the problem. The problem was, again, that to them, God didn't factor into any of this. Verse 13, where he says, you who say, is literally, in the Greek text, the ones who are saying. The tense points out that it's a lifestyle issue. It's the way they're living their lives continuously. This is a day-to-day neglect on their part. They're neglecting God. They would remind you of the main character in Jesus' parable of the rich fool. In Luke chapter 12, the, guy, the, the farmer who had a bumper crop season, he said, I, I, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to tear down all my barns. I'm going to build bigger and better ones. And, and I'm going to put all of my goods in there. And I'm going to say to myself, self, you've got it made. Eat, drink, and be merry. And God God said to him, you fool, you don't even realize that this very night your soul is going to be required of you. You're going to have to give an account. The irony in that parable is that just when that rich fool thought that he had planned everything down to a T was the very moment that God said, you're not going to be around to enjoy any of it. You ever met people like that? They're all about this world, all about building riches or whatever. And folks, for all they know, they won't be around to enjoy any of it. Secondly tonight, I want you to see the fact that we must account for the uncertainty of life. We must account for the uncertainty of life. Verse 14, James says, Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Folks, we don't know the future. These folks had planned out the next year when God said they couldn't even be sure of the very next day. You know, on the one hand, it's, it's, it's pretty impressive what mankind has been able to accomplish, isn't it? What mankind knows. We can, uh, we can split atoms and build skyscrapers, and transplant organs, program computers, 
send men into space. All of that's pretty impressive. But yet, we don't even know what tomorrow holds, do we? Yeah. Sure. It's not man. It, we, the great things man's accomplished only because of what God's allowed us to do. But in the midst of all of this technology and all this wisdom and all this knowledge, we don't even know what the next hour holds. Can you tell me right now that you know what's going to happen by 9 o'clock tonight? No, none of us do. You don't even know the next five minutes of your life with a certainty, do you? Dr. James Dobson, Focus on the Family, of course, even though he's still in, involved uh, with Focus on the Family, you know, he's, he's stepped back from, he's retired now from it, stepped back from the day-to-day operations. But remember the famous basketball player, Pete Maravich? Dr. Dobson and Pete Maravich, they used to play some pickup games. Older guys that would get together in a gym and play basketball. Just pick out teams and and play little pickup games. One day they got in the gym and, and Dr. Dobson was there. Pete Maravich was there. And Dr. Dobson said, Pete, how you feeling today? And Pete said, Dr. Dobson, I'm feeling great. And he took a few steps and fell to the hardwood floor dead of a heart attack. We can recall the past, but we can't see the future. I mentioned Augustine a moment ago. Uh, According to him, God was wise in his decision to veil the future from our eyes. He said, God will not suffer man to have the knowledge of things to come. For if he had uh, knowledge of his prosperity, he would be careless. And knowledge of his adversity, he would be senseless. Now, more recently, Dr. W.A. Criswell, who, of course, has passed away now, founding pastor, First Baptist Church, Dallas, Texas, uh, he observed, he said, there must have been a kindness and a goodness of God in thus veiling the future from our eyes. For if a man knew what the morrow would bring, he would live in constant fear and foreboding. Dying, he would die a thousand deaths before dying just once. Fainting, he would faint a thousand times under a stroke that was yet to be delivered. God hides the future from our eyes that we might live in confidence and in hope. Thirty years ago, futurists peering into their crystal balls predicted that one of the biggest problems for coming generations would be what to do with all of their abundant leisure time. 
1967, testimony before a Senate subcommittee claimed that by 1985, people could be working just 22 hours a week and only 27 weeks a year and that all Americans would be able to retire certainly by the age of 38. That one didn't work out so good. We don't know the future. Life is a complex matrix of forces, events, people, circumstances over which we have no control whatsoever. Folks, think of everything that's involved in life. Life's made up of People, places, activities, goals, days, months, years, decades. We've got to make sometimes very crucial decisions day to day. Again, apart from the will of God, life is a bit of a mystery. But despite that, people still live as though they are God. Sadly. Now, you know, Christians have the benefit of of knowing the the true God who controls every day. We don't know the future. I know it's a cliche now. We don't know the future, but we know the one who holds the future. Amen? And Romans 8.28, God promises us that he uses all things in our lives for our good. King David wrote, trust in the Lord, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Oh, people want the desires of their heart, but they don't want to do the first part. Trusting in the Lord and delighting themselves in him. Again, what they've done here, they've miscalculated James. Not only have they been presumptive, but they've miscalculated the brevity of life. Don't you know life is just a vapor he's telling them here. Life is fragile. Job said man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. Like a flower he comes forth and withers. He also flees like a shadow and does not remain. In Psalm 102 verse 11 the Bible says my days are like a shadow that lengthens and I wither away like grass. Again, Job said, now my days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. You ever feel that way about your life? Like your your life is just going by so quickly. Your days are just fleeing away like like a swift runner. Back when we were... Back when we were going through this passage, when we did the book of James, I I told you about um, a trip I took with Gary Klein. Gary Klein and I used to go up to this mountain house up in West Jefferson. Of course, uh, Ray Kilpatrick and David Fink bought that from Gary before Gary passed away. But uh, used to love going up there with Gary, and we'd get out kind of beating around the mountains up there and 
There's an old church, an old church cemetery up there. You ever, do you ever go through old church cemeteries? Some, some of the tombstones, things written on them, just absolutely fascinating. And, and you wonder, what was this person's story? Well, we're, we're walking through one of those cemeteries, and on, on one tombstone it said, Buell Sievert. Born July 17th, 1918. Died June 14th, 1919. Then right next to it, another tombstone said, Anna Sievert. Born June 7th, 1919. Died June 22nd, 1919. Now, you see what happened there? What I would assume happened there. I would assume these two children were siblings. The mother gave birth to Buell in July of one year. The next June, she gave birth to Anna. Then the week after Anna was born, Buell died. He was just 11 months old. And then the week after that, Anna also died. She was just two weeks old. The brevity of life. Don't you wonder what what happened there and what that family went through? The, The pain and the suffering those parents went through. You know, over and over again, people will tell me about some accident they had or some illness they had, some serious illness that they recovered from that caused them to take stock of life and make a major course correction in their life. Maybe some accident they had where they almost lost their life, but they survived. And that accident caused them to rethink life. You've probably had people tell you things like that too. Life is so brief. Lillian Little, 100 years old. Folks, think about it. In light of eternity, though, what's a hundred years? It's like a watch in the night. James says life is, life is like a vapor. Speaking of mountains a while ago, you ever, you ever get up in the morning in the mountains and you look across a valley and it's, it's a kind of a cool time of the year and, and, and you look across that, that valley and, and the clouds, the, the, the fog down real low on the ground. And you look out again just a half hour half hour or hour later it's gone James says that's how life is in classical Greek 
the, the words James uses here in verse 14 were sometimes used to describe a flock of, of geese that would fly overhead. You hear them honking, coming overhead and they're honking. And you look up and there goes that V formation and they're honking off into the distance. And pretty soon you don't, you don't see them anymore. In classical Greek, that's sometimes how these words right here were used. Again, to describe the brevity of life. James says, that's how life is. Here today, gone tomorrow. One of my favorite fables, it's an Arabic fable of the merchant of Baghdad. He sent his servant into the market. Uh, I was reading that fable again here recently. The merchant sent his servant to the market one day. Before long, the servant returned. He was white as a sheet and he was trembling. And he said to his master, down in the marketplace, I was jostled by a woman in the crowd who was wearing a, a hooded robe. And I turned to see who had bumped into me. And it was death. She looked at me and made a threatening gesture. Master, please lend me a horse that I may hasten to Samara and hide there so that death can't find me. The master loaned him his horse and the servant galloped away in haste. Well, Later that day, the merchant himself went to the marketplace. And there she was again. He saw her, death, in her black hooded robe. And he walked over to death and said, Why did you threaten my servant this morning? How dare you do something like that? You scared him to death. Why did you do that? Why did you look at him that way? And death replied, That was not a threatening gesture. I was only startled and surprised. You see, I was astonished to see him here in the marketplace in Baghdad because later today I have an appointment with him in Samara. You know, you could say that all of us have an appointment in Samara, don't we? Somebody else once wrote, when I was young, I was poor. When old, I became rich. But in each condition, I found a disappointment. When I had the faculties of enjoyment, I had not the means. When the means came, the faculties were gone. (laughs) All of that means what? It's foolish to live our lives without God. It's foolish to not recognize the brevity of life. It's foolish to be presumptive with our lives. Third thing James wants them to understand is that the fact that we must acknowledge the will of God. We must acknowledge the will of God. He says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we, would, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. 
All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to the one who knows to do the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Folks, we are to live all of life under the umbrella of the will of God. God should be the Lord of all of our plans. And so James says, instead of planning your life away without God, instead we ought to be saying, if the Lord wills. Now, he's not advocating that we just go around all the time saying, if, if the Lord wills, if the Lord wills, if the Lord... What he's talking about is, is it ought to be in here. It ought to be the attitude that we live by, if the Lord wills. Deo valenti should be our way of life. He says, by, by failing to do so, we become arrogant. More so than arrogant, though, we, we also sin. He says, therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it to him, it is sin. Heard about a man who sold a mule. He was taking the mule across town to sell it. He met up with one of his friends, and his friend said, where are you going with that mule? He said, I'm going to sell it. The friend said, you should say you're going to sell the mule if it's the Lord's will. He said, no, no Lord's will about it. I've already sold it. I'm going to deliver it and get my money for it. The friend friend went on to say, no, no, no. You ought to say if the Lord wills, I'm going to sell that mule and pick up my money. The owner insisted again, no, again, no Lord's will about it. The man's already agreed to the price. We've agreed on the price together and and I'm taking the mule to him and I'm going to get my money. They argued for a little while. The man went on his way. He was running late and so he cut across another man's field with the mule. The man who owned the field got angry, shot and killed the mule. (laughs) The mule fell dead across the owner and broke one of his legs. An hour or so went by and some friends had come along and picked him up on a mat and carrying him, carrying him to the hospital. And he met up with this friend again that he had argued with for so long. The friend said, what happened to you? He said, well, I argued with you so long that I was running late. And so I cut across so-and-so's field. He saw me, got mad, shot at us and killed my mule. When the mule fell, it fell across me and broke my leg. The friend said, well, what are you going to do now? The man looked at his friend and paused a moment and said, well... If it's the Lord's will, I'm going to the hospital. (laughs) Again, James says what they're doing is arrogant. And it's not only arrogant, but it's evil. He says... To the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. What kind of sins can we commit? 
Commission and omission. What's commission? Things we do. Transgressions. What's omission? Things we should do. Billy Graham said the greatest sin in the life of the Christian and non-Christian is not the sin of commission, the sin of omission. Sunday school teacher once asked her class, does anybody know what sins of omission are? And a little boy spoke up and said, I do. The teacher said, very well then, Johnny, tell us. He said, sins of omission are the sins that we were supposed to commit and never did. (laughs) The greatest sin a man can commit is to ignore God. To live as though God's not even there. Right? Deo valente. God's will. I wonder tonight if I'm talking to somebody. You just, you plan in your life for what you get up every day of your life and you just start your day, you go about your day. God never enters the picture. Anybody guilty? You face decisions, sometimes major decisions to make in your life. And like the guy with the mule, you've just gone ahead and made decisions. You've done things in your life. Didn't seek God. Anybody guilty? Everybody's guilty, right? We've all lived that way at times. Again, think of the foolishness of it. Because we don't control time. We don't control our lives, the longevity of our lives. Yet we serve a sovereign God who has the universe in his hands. He sees tomorrow, we don't. He's omnipotent, omniscient, he knows everything. He knows your needs, my needs. He knows exactly what he wants for us. And the gracious thing is, he's willing to direct our steps if we'll trust him. Do you seek him? Do you trust him? Do you turn to him? All of life is to be bathed in prayer. Again, it's not just simply about saying the words. But it's the attitude of the heart. Do you trust Him? Do you live according to the will of God? Do you allow God to direct your steps? What you do with your life in terms of your work, the major decisions you make in your life, even the minor decisions, your plans for the future, 
Do you trust God with all of that? Or do you just get up and go about your day? Captain of your own ship. That's sin. We need to call it what it is. It's sin. It's disobedience. 